Dr. Lecter. Hello, Agent Starling. Have the lambs stopped screaming? Yes. Now I'll wait to a different noise. What is it? A podcast. Ah, yes. Tell me, why do they call themselves celluloid junkies? Please tell me, the papers won't say. What started as a bad joke in Kansas? They said, these two like to skin their humps. And what does it do, this podcast you seek? Enthrall me with your acumen. They discuss movies. No, that is incidental. Well, they got real physical strength, combined with an older man's discipline. They're never impulsive and they'll never stop. Why is that? They got a real taste for it now and they're enjoying their work. Very good. You're so close to how you're going to catch him. Tell me where I can download the episodes, Doctor. On iTunes, I suspect, Clarice. Or their website, www.celluloidjunkies.com. Thank you, Dr. Lecter. Now run along, Clarice. Fly, fly, fly. Fly, fly, fly. Fly, 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 fly. Fly, 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 Hello and welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I am here with Damien Heath. Hello. This is the first episode of its kind for us. It's our 2018 Oscar lineup show. In this discussion, we'll be sharing our thoughts about the films of 2017 and discuss the nine Best Picture Oscar nominees. We're also going to reveal our top five films of the year, so we're very excited. This year's ceremony is being held on March 4, rather than its usual late February date, so as not to coincide with the 2018 Winter Olympics. Jimmy Kimmel will be hosting for a second consecutive year. The two nitwits from PricewaterhouseCoopers, who caused last year's Best, best Picture upset, have been replaced. And extra measures have been implemented to ensure that no erroneous cards will be handed out to presenters. Have they really been replaced? Yeah, they're working for the company, but they not, have nothing to do with the Oscars. <laughs> Um, there's a dark Weinstein-shaped cloud hanging over the awards season this year, and the ripple effects are ongoing. James Franco, who was a favourite for Best Actor, missed out on a nomination after sexual harassment allegations surfaced against him in the middle of the voting window. Another accused actor, Casey Affleck, has pulled out of the ceremony where he was set to present the Best Actress Award after his win last year. Not for the first time, socio-political pressures are clouding an institution that's supposed to be solely about measuring artistic achievement. On the plus side, the industry is clearly unified in taking a stand and sending out a clear message that the sleazy boys club in Hollywood is on its way out. Damien, what do you think overall about this year's Oscar lineup? I'm a little bit underwhelmed. Really? Yes. And for me... Uh, a lot of that has to do with the complete shutout of Mother <laughs> from <laughs> this award ceremony. I feel like it's, I feel like it's just kind of a consolation prize for everybody else because for me that's the greatest movie of the year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I didn't expect Mother to get anything because it just was far too polarizing a film. But obviously, given how much you and I loved it, it's kind of like, uh, well. Okay, I guess we'll look at the other films then. Yes. Mother feels like it's kind of in its own class. Yeah. And there's not really... uh, None of these films, I I think, are um, come close to it. There is one film, my second favourite of the year, that I think comes close. But apart from that, there's nothing else. Yeah. 
some ideas about the films. I noticed that we've got some themes. So we've got a coming of age kind of theme with Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name. We've got World War II theme with Dunkirk and Darkest Hour. We've got uh, the idea of oppression. So we've got social oppression in a film like Three Billboards uh, and The Shape of Water and Get Out. And then we've got political oppression with The Post. And then we've just got this kind of one old-fashioned sweeping romantic drama with Phantom Thread. Uh, so, yeah, interesting that there are some of these. And, and, you know, these are ideas that Oscar voters are always interested in, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so so there's some idea. Did you want to tell us about the first nominated film? The first nominated film is Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name, which is written by James Ivory, formerly of Merchant Ivory. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a film about a boy's coming of age, essentially, uh, spent with his rich family in Italy <laughs> during one summer. It uh, has received a lot of recognition. Uh, Timothy Calamet, Timothy Calamet has a um, best actor nomination for this movie. And what did you think of it? I loved the movie. I gave it five out of five. For me, it it, it had some of the best performances of the year. Uh, I think it was a really kind of luxurious and stylish coming-of-age movie about themes that are close to both of us. Um, And uh, I guess we could react either way to those themes and how they're portrayed, but I think it was very delicate. Uh, I think some of the sensational parts of the movie were, you know, I didn't respond to them negatively, but I didn't respond to them positively as well. The the lead, Timothy Calumet, his um, performance, I think, is really quite phenomenal in that movie. I, I really loved it. I'm surprised that the film didn't get Best Supporting Actor nominations, particularly for Michael Stuhlbarg. Well, um, we famously had differing opinions about this film. I'm not sure it's famous. Oh, well, it is now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I walked out of this film... Um, before it had even fucking finished. Uh, I I persevered. I think I was in the cinema for maybe an hour and a half of it. Look, the film is effective in the sense that it creates a certain languorous mood and sustains it. But for me, it's at the expense of substance and emotional complexity. It's basically Tim Chalamet sitting on a bench, lying by a pool, lying in bed, back to the bench, then on a bike, um, and then back to the bench. Usually for all all the gays out there, just in a pair of shorts, by the way. Which is not exciting, because he has a pre-teen kind of body, and it's actually faintly pedophilic. The Let's way move that the on film, before I get myself into trouble here. The way the film lingers on his unformed body is not not sexual it's not exciting or it shouldn't be it's it's a postcard movie it's it's a postcard movie the same way that under the tuscan sun is a postcard uh, movie uh, you know and, and and we're not doing this because it's too painful but um, but but this is a movie that and i came out of it and i described it as borderless and i really believe it is it's a very european English language movie, it, it, so it, it doesn't take into account the fact that it is set in Italy and only Italy. It is not just of that culture; it is of so many cultures. And I think that was one of the defining successes of this movie for me. Whereas for you, you see it as a postcard movie. It's a pretty postcard movie. You know, you could put these images on a postcard and send them to your mum when you're over there in Europe. But for me, it was a lot deeper than that. And their use of the 
the the setting was so much greater than just being a postcard movie. Yeah, I I um I don't think that it has a I don't think that it has a completely European sensibility because you've got the Army Hammer character who's American, and in terms of its pace and sort of I guess some of its kind of amorality, there's a European feeling about it. But I wouldn't say that it's exclusively like in in its attitude. I don't. I think the film's kind of empty. I don't think it really has an attitude. I know you think it's vapid and vacuous. I think the characters are. I think the characters are awful. (laughs) Who's Um, the most vapid, Luke? All of them. Well, (laughs) they're they're all horrible. Um, It's it's. I don't know where you. I don't know how you find a key to like these people. They are they they are privileged people who sit around doing nothing. And um, you know, it's not good. It's not especially bad. It's just nothing. It's just empty. Um, the writing is non-investigative. It's The scenes don't breathe. Whenever it's about to get interesting, you cut to somewhere else. Whenever the, the dialogue maybe is about to get a bit interesting, it quickly moves on. It just didn't really have any movement for me. It didn't do anything for me. There's, um, I'm not going to go on about it too much because I know Damien loves it and I don't like to hurt Damien's feelings. <laughs> but there is a, um, there's a, an author I love. He writes for The New Yorker. His name's Richard Brody. And he, I actually came across this while I was doing research for this, um, episode. He wrote The, em- the Empty Sanitized Intimacy of Call Me By Your Name. And he writes in great detail about, um, about what's wrong with the film, and I agreed with it. So do check it out and have a read of it. It's very interesting um, look at the film. If you weren't a fan of it, don't look it up if you were a fan because it's just going to drive you nuts. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the uh, second film nominated this year is Darkest Hour, which is directed by Joe Wright, uh, who did Atonement. And it's about Winston Churchill's decision to enter into war with Germany at the precipice of World War II. Now, unfortunately, Damien and I haven't seen this film. I was going to watch it last night, but I decided instead to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. I tell you what, I'm <laughs> I am not keen on seeing this film. I mean, look, apparently it's quite good. Gary Oldman is the front runner for best actor this year. That's the lock category of this year, and I'm sure he will get it. The film itself isn't getting the greatest buzz. A lot of critics have cited some problems with it structurally and with the dialogue. Apparently it's quite dour. But I mean, look, if you're interested in that side of history and everything, it's probably well worth seeing. And certainly I think Gary Oldman's going to take home the prize this year for that film. Our next nominee for Best Picture is Christopher Nolan's war epic, Dunkirk. 
which is uh, strange because it's uh, it's got many, many, many stars in it, and it's not a star picture. It is an ensemble picture. It features some uh, really excellent uh, performances, but mostly it is for me. It is a director's film. Uh, I think Christopher Nolan does a fantastic job as a director. I think he's a. It's hard to say that Christopher Nolan's an underrated director, but he has so many box office successes that almost overshadow his critical brilliance. And he is a brilliant filmmaker. And he directs Dunkirk with this steady hand as he directs all of his movies with. Um, I don't think it's his best movie. I think it's a really good movie. I gave it four out of five, Dunkirk. But I think what it does is it's got this um, combination of pictures and sounds that work so well together, which is what a movie is. And so Dunkirk succeeds in that respect. It's a worthy Best Picture nominee, while not being uh, the kind of film that I would give a Best Picture award to. It's not a war film, it's a suspense film about the war. And that's, I think, a really important distinction to make. It doesn't feel like any other war film that you'll see. Uh, As you say, it is an incredibly immersive experience. It kind of engages all five senses. Um, You know, you really feel the roaring of engines, the flooding of water, the zooming of the jets. It uh, explores a community, as you say, rather than uh, individual characters. You know, we don't just get these hollow backstories of certain characters. When when you've got a film that's got Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hardy and Cillian Murphy and Harry Styles from One Direction and countless other people as well. Mm. And not one of those people is the focus of the movie and not one of the other people is the focus of the movie either. And nobody comes out on top. It feels very... It is very much an ensemble. The SAG Awards, Screen Actors Guild Awards, they give an award each year for Best Ensemble. Mm. And this year it was won by the cast for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. But they were great individual performances, whereas Dunkirk is a great ensemble piece. I think it's a great film. About 15 minutes in, this ticking starts, which is the Hans Zimmer score. And it essentially doesn't stop. From the minute that it comes in, about at the 15-minute mark, it is like an extended suspense sequence. And the film looks at the war from the point of view of land and then sea and then sky. And it cuts between those three areas throughout the whole film so we've got tom hardy in a jet we've got a family in a boat and then we've got the men that are stranded at the beach uh waiting to be picked up and uh it's just a really fascinating beautiful frightening and really exciting film i had probably a stronger emotional reaction to some of christopher nolan's other films but i think dunkirk is probably a better film than a lot of them. I think that it's less flawed than something like Interstellar, even though I loved Interstellar. You know, there's no Anne Hathaway scene about love where you're just cringing and going, why is this in there? It feels like it, it hits more of the right notes more consistently. Strange that we responded so strongly to Interstellar. I mean, both of us were bawling in the cinema when we saw Interstellar during that scene, I think, where he's communicating with his kids. It is such a, a, a kind of flawed kind of manipulative movie in those in that sense and now there's a facebook group out there called one perfect shot and if you don't follow it but if you're interested in cinematography you should follow it one perfect shot now i'll often take a photo and they'll just show you that that's that's it one perfect shot and the opening scene of dunkirk and that's what i'm most interested in when it comes to the visual side of movies is mise-en-scene or the arrangement of a scene and 
the opening shot of Dunkirk with five soldiers walking down an empty street flanked by all of these buildings and paper falling from the sky. And this paper is essentially, it's from German, the German military saying, we're going to get you. (laughs) And that shot is just an amazing shot. An amazing shot. It it really is one of the best shots I've seen in, in a very long time. Uh, the next film nominated is Get Out, which is the debut film of Jordan Peele. Practically everybody knows about this film. It came out early last year. Got a lot of attention immediately upon its release. Huge hit. Huge critical and box office hit. The story is about a black guy who drives out to the country with his white girlfriend to meet her parents, and um, he begins to suspect that the people there have sinister intentions for him. It's been nominated for four Oscars, including Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Original Screenplay, so some of the major categories. It's a very well-made middle finger to the left-wing view of racial equality. It's an excellent use of horror cliches. You know, it borrows heavily from films like The Stepford Wives and The Wicker Man for its central premise. It's a genre film, which is why it's so interesting that it's got the kind of critical attention that it's received. But it's a very good genre film, and it feels very immediate. It has a real urgency to it. I think that there is probably a sense from some people that it's overhyped. I think possibly it is. I think the PC police have come out and are revering it a little bit. If you swapped the black thing for something maybe less politically trendy, that no one would have really cared. I think it was always going to be a big hit because I think it's a great crowd-pleasing film. But I think that the fact that it's uh, about black people and this black issue has kind of elevated the film in the eyes of the critical establishment. Still, I'm really, really pleased to see a well-made horror film being one of the nine nominated films this year. Well, nine's a lot, and it leaves spots open for films like Get Out, (laughs) which are good movies. I rated Get Out four out of five, and and I think I rated pretty much every film that came out last year four out of five, by the way. But Get Out, I rated four out of five. I think it's a really fun movie. I think it's a good horror movie. I think the performance is good. I think the, the story's good. I think it's just as good as It Follows came out the that came out the year before and i wouldn't have nominated it follows for best picture either but you know get out would have been if there were only five it would have been one of the five and i think that kind of shows me the problem with this year because get out is not a best picture winning film it is not a best picture nominated film Mm. it's not but it's a contender for the prize it it is a contender yes like a serious contender in a way that darkest hour or call me by your name are not serious contenders call me by your name is a serious contender but let's move on from that i'm not saying that because i just liked it i'm saying it because it just isn't like it's one of those films that's been thrown in to make up for the nine same as the post the next film is ladybird which is directed by greta gerwig and it stars swazi ronan and laurie metcalf and is essentially as luke said before a uh, coming of age story it's about a girl's first time. It's about her going away to college. It's uh, it's about a whole lot of things, but it I guess is an interpersonal drama and about displacement within the world. I mean, the the whole story is about this girl who who refuses to take her name, her real name. She calls herself Ladybird. That's where it comes from. It features fantastic performances, and uh, I believe Ronan is nominated for best actress. And Laurie Metcalf is one of the two frontrunners for Best Supporting Actress. Anybody who knows her as Jackie from Roseanne would be... uh, Or even the mum who was the killer in Scream 2. 
It is a near-perfect film. The writing is beautiful. The comedy is born... It's a comedy, I think, and it's born organically from the characters. There's no contrivances in the writing. Even the smallest characters are given depth and humour. It's very wise about the conundrum-facing young people, which is that they're so anxious to be who they are before they actually know who they are. Christine is so determined to be her own creation, she rejects the name her parents gave her and calls herself Ladybird. It's rich with insight. I love the scene where the nun asks Christine if love and paying attention aren't the same thing. It's just a beautiful, enriching way to spend a couple of hours. Star-making turn for, um, Sars... Is it... How do you say it? Oh, well, I say Swazi. I'm sorry if that's wrong. Laurie Metcalf, who I've always thought is a, is a great actress, shows us that she's a great actress in this film. And Tracy Letts is really touching and beautiful in this film as well. I think it's tremendous. I'm really glad such a small film has gotten such a wide audience and that it's being embraced. I think Greta Gerwig did a lot of her formal training with Noah Baumbach, and that really shows in the writing. Well, this is the uh, only movie directed by a woman that's in Best Picture. She is also nominated for Best Director, and I believe she's one of the frontrunners. Yeah, it's her first... First film, length. and you, yes, so there's two people, two of five people in the best director co- category uh, is their first film, Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig, and Timothy Calamet is also in Lady Bird, so he's in two of the best picture nominated films, which is not the most films that any particular actor is in, because Michael Stuhlbarg, who was in Call Me by Your Name, is in two other films. <laughs> so yeah, but he's in he's in Lady Bird as well. The next film uh, nominated is Phantom Thread, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is a romance between an eccentric dressmaker in the London couture scene in the 1950s and his muse, a headstrong waitress who falls under his spell. The film has been nominated for six Oscars, including uh, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Score and Best Costume Design. The experience of watching this film is like a seduction. From the second it starts, it draws you completely into its world and it holds you there. It's about the temperament of an artist and the difficult path the woman who falls in love with him must carve out for herself to find a way to kind of access him. They kind of reach an unconventional, faintly disturbing compromise. But it is an incredibly accomplished film. It is very assured. It is very gentle. It is stunningly elegant. There are scenes where your breath is taken away from you. There's a score by Johnny Greenwood, which is just gorgeous. It is such a lustrous, beautiful experience. It's a highly complex film in terms of the characters. You know, Daniel Day-Lewis is very brittle and very eccentric and set in his ways, and he's kind of got this spidery feeling about how he moves and looks. He, he like He's the kind of person where... There can't be any noise at breakfast or his day is ruined. And he says that, you know, and she's the kind of person that's kind of equally stubborn, but she does it in a very gentle, soft way. So it's that kind of thing where he'll say something which is unreasonable, make some demand, and then there's a a silence. And then she will just very, very gently provoke him with some comment. You know, she she doesn't put up with anything of it. And the whole film kind of works with that tension. The other thing about the film is it's almost like a fairy tale. The way it's shot, it's just so stunning and beautiful. It's got all these kind of, it's got like a mysterious, super superstitious kind of vibe to it. It's just beautiful. I gave this film five stars. It is my favourite, easily, of all of the nine nominated films. So this is the second and other film that I have not seen that's nominated for Best Picture. Um, you did give me the opportunity. You did say, hey, I've bought tickets. Do you want to go? 
And uh, I said, no. <laughs> and yet I love and have loved for a long time Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Hard Eight. Punch Drunk Love is my favourite of his movies, and I just rewatched that last week. Uh, but uh, The Master, There Will Be Blood, mm. and now Phantom Thread. And I've loved all of his movies. I'm sure I'd love this one as well. I think and Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic in anything that he does. And he's been nominated for this. He is. He is. And I swear there's a couple of moments in this film where he does that Daniel Day-Lewis smile. And I have never seen someone... He lights up a screen with warmth when he smiles. He just has the most unique... Uh, it just lifts you. This whole film lifts you up. As soon as the music starts, it's like you get put in this cart that's just kind of wheeling through this wonderland. And then you just, and then the cart stops when the movie ends. It literally does not stop until then. It is, it is a transcendent experience. Paul Thomas Anderson's a great director. Of the nominees for best director, do you think that he should win? Uh, he would be my choice easily. I don't think he will, but he'll be my choice. I'm thinking it's going to Del Toro this year for Shape of Water. Hmm. The next nominee for Best Picture is a film that I really loved um, and uh, just goes against all of my sensibilities. It was Steven Spielberg's The Post, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And this is a historical drama which tells the story of the release of the Pentagon Papers, specifically the, uh, I guess, inner machinations of the... Washington Post newspaper at the time in the 1970s when uh, Richard Nixon was in power. I guess the political climate and how scared the media was of a president like Nixon who threatened and lobbied and even took legal action against newspapers that were willing to question his presidency and uh, were willing to question the reasons that we went to war in uh, Vietnam, or the, the United States went to war in Vietnam. But it wasn't just about Nixon, it was about JFK, and it was about Lyndon Johnson as well, the other presidents of the time. In this film, uh, Tom Hanks plays the uh, editor of the newspaper, the Washington Post, and uh, Meryl Streep is the owner. Uh, what happens is that the New York Times starts releasing information from the Pentagon Papers, and they get an injunction against them. And uh, essentially... The Post is able to come up with the Pentagon Papers and they have to make a decision about whether they will publish them. And that's what this movie is about. I think it's one of Spielberg's best movies in quite a while. I loved the um, the whole feeling of this movie. I love these kinds of stories. It's, I guess it's very reminiscent of Spotlight, the film that did win Best Picture a couple of years ago, but it's more reminiscent of something like All the President's Men, which is a companion piece to this film. And uh, Spielberg even goes as far as doing his own little tribute to All the President's Men at the end of this film. But uh, I, I, I love this movie. I'm glad that it's nominated for Best Picture. I think it's so funny that you loved it more than me. Yeah, I did. I, I found this to be just a a really great trip. Well, look, having said that, I did really enjoy it. I think the film has a real energy, a real verve. There's no kind of self-reverence or self-importance about it, which is really refreshing for a Spielberg film. Uh, there's a slickness to it, a real kind of economy in the storytelling. There are a few moments where the Spielberg schmaltz gets in the way, but they're very slight. They don't hurt your feeling um, of the film. I agree with you that it's a really nice companion piece to All the President's Men. Loved the ending. But... At the same time, it's nowhere near as accomplished as all the president's men. I think what separates the two films is that 
the sense of jeopardy in all the president's men is far more serious uh, than it is in the post. In the post, it's it's fun. I, I almost got the feeling when I walked out like, well, that was a good yarn. The other thing I think is interesting about the film is that it draws from history to create a fantasy for people who are who are currently feeling a little bit uncomfortable with being in the Trump era. For a lot of left-wingers, for a lot of Democrats, and not just that, but people who believe in, you know, a more intelligent version of the future than Trump is giving us, I think The Post is a great film to kind of get out some of those feelings. It's a good cathartic feeling. It's a hopeful movie because just like Nixon, um, Trump is somebody who is, is ruling with a bit of an iron fist. And it's and is a bit of a bully. Well, did you hear what Trump said yesterday? No. Trump yesterday said that uh, uh, one of the senators, the Republican senators, I believe, said that he's his favourite president <laughs> since he's been alive. And in fact, he's his favourite president ever. He's even better than George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And Trump just so happily spouted this off at a rally that he was having. Anyway. Everybody's outrage about Trump makes me feel like I have no outrage, like I don't need to. I don't read about him, I don't care about him, and I have no hostility towards him. But I feel like Trump could one day be portrayed in a movie the way that Nixon is portrayed in this film. And, I mean, they are using the actual Nixon tapes, as you say. The problem is that Nixon has an intelligence and authority that Trump doesn't have. Trump's a a buffoon. Yeah. The other interesting thing about this film is that it is not Spielberg and Tom Hanks's first uh, collaboration. They've obviously collaborated several times. Mm. It is Spielberg and Meryl Streep's first collaboration. Well, she did a bit of voice work in AI. That's right, she did. But it is also Hanks and Streep's first collaboration. What's really interesting about this film is I think Spielberg was doing something, then that got postponed... Uh, they were shooting this film in May, and right. it was released, so it just all happened real fast. Mm. And Which I th- is, I, I think, that's how I feel when a Steven Spielberg com- film comes out. Well, I think it works to the film's credit. I think that's perhaps why there wasn't too much overthinking in it. Mm. It's just a simple story, really well told. Yeah. So the next uh, nominated film is The Shape of Water, which is directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's about a janitor working at a government facility in the 50s who strikes up a romance with a sea creature that's being held captive by a sadistic team of military personnel. This film's been nominated for 13 <laughs> nomina- uh, thirteen categories. Best Director, Best Actress, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, Original Score, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, Production Design, Cinematography, Costume Design and Film Editing. It's, um, it's a good film. Um, it's uh, kind of a strange blend of adult themes explored within a fairy tale construct. It's about the outcasts and rejects of society. So you have a deaf woman, you have a black woman, you have an older gay guy. So these are all kinds of people that are um, marginalised by the greater majority of people. And then, of course, you have the sea creature itself who comes to represent, I guess, animals in general and the fact that they've always been subservient to, tortured by, destroyed by uh, humans. The bullies in this film are all square-jawed, white heterosexual males. There's something about this film's insistence on kink and bestiality that I found a little off-putting. Having said that, there are some really ingenious moments, particularly a black-and-white musical sequence, which um, for a, a minute or two there lifts the film up and, um, you know, really kind of dazzles you. 
It's got an amazing performance by Sally Hawkins, a really touching performance by her. I liked it. I generally do like Del Toro's films. I didn't love it. I didn't walk out going, wow, that was incredible. What did you think? I gave it a four out of five. I share much the same sentiment. I loved the black and white musical dance number. Uh, I would say even one of my favourite scenes in any movie this year. I think it was fantastic. But the rest of the film is not like that. I really did not like being in Sally Hawkins' apartment or Richard Jenkins' apartment. I didn't like... um, I didn't like the friendship between Hawkins and Octavia Spencer. I didn't like the role that Michael Shannon played, um, even though I love Michael Shannon and I love Octavia Spencer. I don't think they were particularly fantastic. I thought Sally Hawkins was great in her role. However, I just feel like it didn't work overall for me as much as it could have. I was a little bit disappointed. That said, I still think it's a four out of five movie because it's very well made. But uh, it definitely wasn't my favourite my favorite film this year, uh, or anywhere close to it. Uh, the other thing is I don't think it's um, Best Director winning film either. You know, it is really imaginative on one hand. <laughs> on the other hand, it's Free Willy. Um. <laughs> the last film nominated is uh, by uh-huh. Martin McDonough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Is a film that stars Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, uh, and the uh, Ranger from Get Out. I gave this movie four out of five. I think it's uh, you know on par with Shape of Water in that respect, but also a, a better film um, just because I found it more enjoyable. That is, the film deals with the response by a mother after her daughter is raped and killed. She lives just off of this. Uh, I guess, unused road that has three billboards along it which haven't been purchased for any advertising purposes for a couple of decades now since the highway bypasses it. And so she decides that she's going to buy these three billboards and she's going to question the local police. And I believe the three billboards she gets are raped while dying, eight months, and still no answers why. Sheriff Willoughby? Sheriff Willoughby. And (laughs) Sheriff Willoughby is... um, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. There's some really good performances in this movie. Frances McDormand, who I absolutely fucking love mm-hmm. in everything that she does, is fantastic. I Sam think she's Rockwell. Our pick for best actress this year. Sam Rockwell is fantastic as well, and I think he's, uh, he's great. There are some things that don't work for me in this movie. The big thing that doesn't work for me, and this is another spoiler. We're just assuming you've seen all these movies. <laughs> the other big thing that doesn't work for me is that, um, Woody Harrelson has cancer. And it just seems like such a contrivance. Oh, really? I didn't mind that at all. That, that he, oh, no, you can't do this because I'm dying of cancer. And it took away from the main narrative of this movie, which I thought was was really good. And, and, and also it just feels like there's a few things that happen here that are just too coincidental. Yeah. The screenplay is a little overworked. Um, mm. Some of the pieces fall together too neatly. One performance I really liked was by Peter Dinklage, who um, is the dwarf. Mm-hmm. And he goes on a date with Frances McDormand, and she is so full of herself on this date. <laughs> and he has one of the best speeches in the movie in that while they're on that date, and I loved it. As opposed to Abby Cornish in this film, who is horribly miscast and gives such a strange performance... Uh, that's really odd. I agree. I think it's a really interesting film. It's interested in the 
complexity of people. There are a lot of people in here who do bad things and they do good things. They have real flaws and they have real strengths and the film has that wonderful ambiguity and all the characters feel like really interesting and get your teeth into them. This was a front runner for Best Picture. It might still be, but um, it's certainly been hurt by an article that appeared in the New York Times, which got a lot of traction. It was by an author named Wesley Moore, and it's called Does Three Billboards Say Anything About America? Well, dot, dot, dot. And um, this article essentially accuses the film of having a racist sensibility. It particularly objected to Sam Rockwell's character. It didn't like that the film made reference to him torturing black men, but at the same time tried to show Sam Rockwell as... like tried to humanize him and make him a good person it also objected to the fact that we just have that referenced and that the film didn't actually show him torturing the black man because the argument was if it had shown us that then the audience would never have forgiven him and never gotten on his side so it it's essentially saying that the film's i guess editorial decisions with that character are uh morally questionable i think this is a load of bollocks that has kind of hurt the film's chances I like that the film is challenging in that way. I like that it dares to say that somebody can be both good and bad. Uh, and certainly that is true of Sam Rockwell's character. It's true of Frances McDormand's character. It's true of practically every character in this film. Nobody is completely good or completely bad. But anyway, so those are the nine. It'll be really interesting to see who's going to win. Do you want to predict, Damien, who you think's got it? Uh, my prediction kind of from the start, um, since the nominations came out, has been three billboards, and I guess I'm going to stay with it. I, I think three billboards will win. However, I wouldn't be surprised if Phantom Thread wins. Well, I'm going to go with three billboards as well, but my hope is that Phantom Thread will be the surprise win, because it's a, it deserves it. If anybody like me is out there interested in statistics and analysis, then go to 538.com. That's uh, 5, F-I-V-E, 30, T-H-I-R-T-E, 8, you get the idea, E-I-G-H-T.com. <laughs> so spell out the numbers. Um, it's run by a gentleman named Nate Silver, who I have followed for a very long time since he used to write for a website called Baseball Prospectus. And uh, he started this website 538 that is the number of electoral house votes in the united states and he started as a political website but it has it has branched out and gives analysis on sports but also on the oscars and uh, they've got a model which awards points to nominees um, best picture nominees best actor best director etc based on the number of nominations and wins they pick up in the awards ceremonies prior to the oscars And they currently have The Shape of Water as the leading film in the Best Picture race, um, mostly because it won at the Producers Guild of America Awards. And second is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which won at the SAG Awards. Of the last 10 winners, Three Billboards only has more points than one of them, and The Shape of Water only has more points than two of them. Ladybird, Dunkirk, and Get Out are the next closest, and are the other ones that had nominations at the Directors Guild of America, which holds the, I guess, most clout for when you're talking about a nomination. So uh, it really is an open race. Um, Mm. I think that those uh, three billboards and uh, I guess The Shape of Water seems to be getting some buzz. Phantom Thread has no points, but also it wasn't released in time for a lot of those uh, award ceremonies prior to the Oscars. So it's really hard to predict that one. I think there's going to be no sweep. I think that the awards are going to go in a myriad of different ways this year, which is kind of good. 
All right, so uh, Damien and I are regular users of a website that we love called Letterboxd. And uh, this website, every time we see a film, we quickly jump on Letterboxd afterwards and we uh, note, we put it in our diary that we've watched it. We give it a star rating generally. So what this does is at the end of the year, Letterboxd is able to print out a statistics report that shows you how many films you've watched, what your average is, what your most watched film is, most watched star is. We thought we would share some of these stats with you, have a bit of a competition, see who's who's got the best numbers. You've got the best numbers, Luke. So, uh, okay, Damien, how many films did you watch in 2017? So, I know this is slightly wrong because I was looking for what I rated Kong Skull Island when I watched it and I couldn't find that I even logged it. So, uh, it says that I've watched 90. <laughs> well, I've watched 273. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, which is an average of 5.2 films a week. 1.7. Uh, my most watched film, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's Beauty and the Beast. I've seen it four times. <laughs> Um, well, I'm less embarrassed to say that my most watched films are Mother and Mad Max Fury Road, twice each. My most watched star was Emma Watson with 11 films, but that's because I did a Harry Potter marathon with her is. Uh, mine are, <laughs> strangely, Tony Todd, the Candyman, <laughs> and Michael Stuhlbarg, four films each. Ah. My most watched director was Woody Allen with eight films. Uh, my most watched director was Alfred Hitchcock with three Okay, good. So you're way ahead in those, but but I will say, I'm already a third of the way through my 2017 numbers already in 2018, making a much more concerted effort not to waste time on little things and to watch more movies to be more cinematic this year. So, uh, now we're going to reveal our top five films of 2017. I will start with my number five. Now, this film was actually released in 2016, but in Australia it came out in June 2017, so I'm including it, because otherwise you'd never be able to include these films. It's an Australian film, and it's called Hounds of Love. It's directed by Ben Young, and it's about a young woman who's abducted and held hostage by a sadistic married couple. It's loosely based on a true story about Catherine and David Burney. They were serial killers in Perth in the 80s. They did this to about six or seven different girls. Very sadistic, horrible couple. And this film is an unflinching, very grim film about a twisted, codependent relationship between two sociopaths. It's very honestly made, very gripping. It's unbearable at times. The dog bashing scene is particularly nasty and I'd probably take that scene out if I could just because it's so unpleasant but it is such a suspenseful frightening well-made movie that's my number five so my number five film is actually The Killing of a Sacred Deer uh, which we saw as uh, part of the Adelaide Film Festival earlier this year Um, it's directed by Yorgos Lanthimos who did The Lobster stars Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman and uh, that kid whose name I've forgotten (laughs) And it's a very, very bizarre film. My number four is Dunkirk. I won't talk about it. We've already done that. But, yep, it's my number four favourite film. We won't talk about my number four either. It is The Post. My third film is The Beguiled by Sofia Coppola, which is um, about a Union soldier who's taken in by a boarding house full of women who are waiting out the war. His presence in the house creates all kinds of emotional and sexual tensions that slowly boil to a head. It's a film that, when it came out earlier last year, kind of... Mm, people didn't really know how to take it. It got overall positive reviews, but it wasn't really largely embraced. It's been all but forgotten um, for the Oscars. But um, Sofia Coppola's restraint and her eye for symmetry 
uh, are really in this film. They're, it's a beautiful looking film. It's got excellent performances. It's got um, a great performance from Kirsten Dunst, who I've never thought anything of, but she's just so well cast in this film. It's a really tense, beautifully written, lovely way to spend. I think it's only about 90 minutes. It's got uh, a wonderful performance from Nicole Kidman. It's just a really psychologically complex, interesting film. I loved it. And yeah, Damien, I have to give it to you to watch because it's worth seeing. I should just buy it. I know I like it. I think you will. My number three film is uh, another one that didn't receive a nomination, so we haven't talked about it yet. Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Mm. And I just watched this a couple of nights ago and I was blown away by it. Um, And I think I said to you, Luke, it's a lot like kind of an American version of The 400 Blows. And it really is. It is such a... Such an honest portrayal of childhood in in the circumstances that it's portrayed, which is, uh, I guess, underprivileged. Sean Baker, he did this film called Tangerine, which I haven't seen, which is apparently quite similar in feeling to The Florida Project, but he has a very distinct style, and he could easily be in the best director category. And, you know, I know Mother's not going to get any nominations. He would be my second pick for that award this year. I think it's a, a phenomenal... Um, job that he's done with this it's um it stars uh two actresses who are going to be big uh the child and her mother and it also has willem dafoe who's nominated and is the front runner for best supporting actor the florida project is one of the three films this year that i gave five stars to i'm really keen to see it in fact i think i might go to the movies and see it um this weekend if i can that's if i uh don't go and see my number two film of the year <laughs> again, which is uh, Phantom Thread, which we've spoken about, but it's just such a beautiful film. Uh, my number two film, also five stars, also that we've talked about, is Call Me By Your Name. I had a tough time picking number two and number three. Did you? Seeing what order they were going. That's how good the Florida Project is for me. Mm. And I wonder what... <laughs> <laughs> number one... <laughs> Uh, my number one film is Mother, directed by Darren Aronofsky. It's about a young wife's efforts to renovate her poet husband's fire-damaged childhood home. But she must contend with a series of increasingly impudent intruders who threaten to, st- to destroy the house and everybody in it. This film is a masterpiece. Uh, this film we did a special episode on earlier this year um, in November, uh, earlier last year, uh, where we go into quite a bit of detail about why we loved it. It just knocked Damien and I for a six. Um, It was um, just incredible. It's about the anxiety of the introvert. It's about global chaos, very neatly constrained within four walls of a living, breathing house. In Aronofsky's unique idiosyncratic style, he blends together elemental ideas about nature, religion, spousal relationships, motherhood, pollution, celebrity culture, social apathy, in one blood-wrenched cry of outrage aimed directly at the audience's jugular. Please check out our episode on it. I don't think that we need to go on it too much here. You can listen to that episode and you will understand the weight of our feeling for this film. And what was your number one, Damien? Oh, yes, it was Mother as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think that goes without saying. We look back and say that, you know, all these films from the 70s are amazing. And how amazing would it have been to be alive when these films were being released? And Mother is one of the few times that I have felt that in my life, that, hey, I'm watching one of these movies, and no matter what you think about it now, this film is going to be regarded as an absolute masterpiece of cinema, in the same way that Vertigo is regarded as a masterpiece of cinema by people 50 years from now. Yeah. 
part of the reason that I'm uh, a bit blase about the Oscars this year is because I'd give a, a Mother Best Picture, I'd give Aronofsky Best Director, I'd give him Best Screenplay, I'd give so many awards to this movie, I'd give nominations to Jennifer Lawrence, to Javier Bardem, to Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, there is so much lacking from this Oscars ceremony because they've ignored this movie. Well, the Razzies didn't. They've given Jennifer Lawrence a Worst Actress nomination. They've given Aronofsky a Worst Director nomination, which is kind of calls into question the credibility of the Razzies because, I mean, it, they're nominated along with, you know, th- films like The Mummy and, you know, it's just films that have no artistic um, integrity. So, I mean, whether or not you liked Mother, you have to at the very least acknowledge it is a technically proficient film that has a very interesting screenplay and narrative. There's nothing in the film that is badly made. This is not shoddy filmmaking. No, but... I fear that we have to move on. We do, or we'll be here all day. <laughs> so, look, um, I'm going to zip through my special mentions of 2017. These are ones that didn't quite make my top five, but please see them. The first one is Detroit by Catherine Bigelow, uh, which has a couple of f- problems. I have a couple of problems with it, which is why it didn't make my top five. But, my God, there are sequences in that film that are so tense, you will be your eyes will be riveted to the screen. Another one I loved this year was The Wizard of Lies by Barry Levinson, which I think was a HBO film. Excellent. Um, Berlin Syndrome, an Australian film by Kate Shortland, which is a really interesting look at... Oh, shit, what is that called, that syndrome? Stockholm. Thank you. Another film that I thought was great, which is was in Damien's number five, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which has an, extra, uh, an excellent Shining-esque kind of horror vibe to it. Really unusual storytelling. Another excellent film that I love this year was I, Tonya, directed by Australian-born Craig Gillespie, which has a fantastic kind of scrapbooky, white, trashy energy to it. Margot Robbie emerges as a really serious actress who's going to have a fantastic career ahead of her because, I mean, she's we knew she had the looks, but by God, she also has the talent. Yeah, and uh, one other film I will say that I did like from this year was Beauty and the Beast, directed by Bill Condon, which um, was a huge success commercially. Critically, it didn't do so well, but I stand by it. I think it's a really romantic, lovely way to spend a couple of hours. Uh, So my special mentions, you've mentioned some of them already, and some of them we mentioned earlier in the best picture, but Dunkirk, uh, I, Tonya, Lady Bird, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. None of those made my top five, but I think that they're all uh, excellent, worthy films. Another one is Lucky, which starred Harry Dean Stanton. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's a performance that should have got a Best Actor nomination. Yeah, look, Lady Bird, I'm really sorry that one didn't make my top five. It almost did. I almost took out Hounds of Love for Lady Bird. But, uh, yeah, in the end, I decided to go with Hounds of Love. The biggest box office films of this year. Uh, Number one, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Number two, Beauty and the Beast. Number three, Wonder Woman. Number four, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And number five, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Star Wars The Last Jedi earned more than all of the nine nominated films this year collectively did. What an absolute fucking shit show. (laughs) I didn't see any of those movies. We have 10 awards to give out, don't we, Damien? We do now. You only gave me nine and I just added one. Well, yeah, that's right, which makes 10. So, okay, let's do uh, number one, favourite screen star of 2017. I'm going to go with the two stars of Call Me By Your Name. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Timothy Calumet. I'm going to be in pain watching him for the next decade because he's beautiful and effortlessly talented. And he was in Call Me By Your Name and Ladybird. And Michael Stuhlbarg, who I always get confused because he looks exactly like Joaquin Phoenix to me. And I guarantee you he will be a Best Supporting Actor winner within the next five years. And this year he was in Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water and The Post. I am giving the Favourite Screen Star of 2017 award to Michelle Pfeiffer, who returned to the screen after four years in such a big way with three noteworthy performances. She was childishly malevolent in Mother and managed to make Ruth Madoff sympathetic in The Wizard of Lies. She also popped up in the ensemble blockbuster Murder on the Orient Express, which isn't a great film, but she distinguished herself from the others in the most exciting role in that film. She gave up acting regularly through the 2000s to focus on her children. She hasn't been on the screen since 2013, um, and she came back this year with those three films. I've always loved her. I love Dangerous Liaisons. I love The Age of Innocence. I love her in Batman Returns. And it was so much fun for me to be able to go to the movies a couple of times this year and see her back on the big screen looking as beautiful and being as talented as ever. Okay, number two, most reviled screen star of 2017. Well, look, I'm <laughs> I'm going to just be a sheep here and say Kevin Spacey, uh, who tried to deflect allegations of sexual harassment by bravely coming out as gay. Spacey is a talented actor, but the right to profit from your talent should be reserved for those who can do so with professionalism and respect for individuals. As a gay man, I found his reaction to being accused deeply offensive. He confirmed every homophobic misconception that being gay is the same as being a pedophile or a sexual deviant. Artistically, he did nothing this year that was particularly great. He had one note in Baby Driver, and that note was smug. And the last season of House and Cards dissolved into soap opera. He spoiled the experience of watching his films, which is so unfair to all the other artists who have collaborated with him and done great work. I won't miss him. Kevin Spacey might be gay, but that has nothing to do with him being an asshole. Um, so I don't really see why the two got conflated. Frankly, I, I never ever want to see him again. I love House of Cards, but this season definitely moved into soap opera. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World, which Spacey was attached to, got replaced with Christopher Plummer, and Christopher Plummer is now received a nomination for that film. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you reckon that's kind of karma working? I think it is. But apparently Christopher Plummer is brilliant in the film. Yeah. And he was really Scott's original choice. But the studio went, no, we need someone bigger. So Ridley Scott was so happy when he got to bump out Kevin Spacey. He was very vocal about it in the newspapers. And I'm glad they did that because now I can potentially see all the money in the world. It would have put a lot of people off. Like, honestly, if Kevin Spacey had stayed in the movie... I wouldn't have had any interest. Now I have a faint interest, even though I'm so sick of Ridley Scott's movies. Uh, Apparently it's great. It's apparently pretty good. My most reviled screen star of 2017. This one was pretty easy for me too, because she gave me so much ammo Mm. in the last month. It's Jada Pinkett Smith. <laughs> and she made issue once an issue of race once again, when clearly that was done and finished after the hashtag Oscars So White campaign a few years ago. Move on. You and your husband are A-list stars with D-list talent, and you have the correct amount of critical recognition. <laughs> very, very true. What was your favourite movie moment of 2017? I've put here all of Mother... And I've said if I have to be more specific, I'd choose the last half. And I can't narrow it down any more than that. Look, the bit that really got me was, I guess, the scene with the baby 
at the end of Mother, and the that was that was movie. yeah, that was the most uh, riveted I have been in a movie this year. A close second with Michael Stuhlberg's speech to Timothy Calamet at the end of Call Me by Your Name, and thankfully you can't comment on that because you'd already left the cinema. My favourite moment, movie moment uh, of 2017 award goes to the sink scene in Mother. Uh, the combination of hilarity and horror in that moment is truly memorable. You want to laugh and cry and scream all at once. Uh, you're never more on Jennifer Lawrence's side when that sink breaks. The whole movie, she has been saying to everybody, don't, things are about to fall apart. When that sink breaks, that's the first time all of her anxieties, which you know are rational, are confirmed. And so it's a moment of horror, but it's also a moment of tremendous relief because it's finally evidence that this woman isn't just screaming at you because she's this school mom. She's screaming at you because you are grossly infringing upon something that means so much to her. Okay, uh, my worst film of 2017 award goes to Annabelle Creation, another James Wan nightmare. These films have bled so much into each other over the past few years that it's getting impossible to separate them. They're just like a giant blood clot. The film builds suspense about as artlessly as one can imagine. It's tantamount to jumping when someone slams a door too hard. There's just nothing in it. Uh, There's no convincing characterizations, no admirable technique, nothing nuanced about it. It is amnesic. I honestly can't remember anything about it. I just have these vague memories of sitting in the cinema thinking that I wanted to be anywhere else. Just quickly mention a couple of runner-up bad films I saw this year. Unforgettable, (laughs) which was a Catherine Heigl film. The Mummy by Alec Kurtzman was horrible. And also I saw 20 minutes of Spider-Man Homecoming, which was basically a giant ad for every other Marvel movie that's coming out. It was atrocious. So yeah, definitely some horrible films this year. The worst film made in 2017 that I've seen is apparently Jigsaw, but then I largely avoid movies I know I'm not going to like, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, I gave Jigsaw two and a half out of five because I didn't really mind it. So it's it's difficult for me to answer that one because I just don't watch bad films. Unless they're horror, and then they're not bad because they're horror. What was your best performance of 2017 award? I've written Jennifer Lawrence, Mother. Me too. Um, okay, most overhyped film of 2017 for me was Alien Covenant. Bitterly disappointing. I love the Alien franchise, and this film is just not in the same category. It is so badly judged in terms of emotional pitch. For the first half an hour, everybody is screaming. They're hysterical. All these trained space astronauts can't cope in a crisis. You're thinking, well, where's Sigourney Weaver? Where's that level-headed rationalism? They're all just screaming, big-breasted teenage girls. That's how they behave. Everyone's crying all the time. Um, Catherine Waterston is just sobbing within the first two seconds of the film, and then she sobs through the rest of the film. And the film takes such a nosedive in the second act that I remember people around me snickering with laughter. It's There's not a single scare in it. It is a stale, dopey film. Uh, I haven't seen Alien Covenant, and I was kind of disappointed because I didn't get to include it in this particular category because I'd heard how bad it was Um, and as I said previously I don't tend to spend much time on movies that I won't enjoy so I'm going to be pretty general here and say the Marvel Universe films they feel like they're over and done but they're making more money than ever and I don't think I've seen one in at least five six seven eight years it feels like a cinematic cancer that I wish there was a cure for (laughs) I have no interest whatsoever Mm. and I have people who I'm friends with 
and I'll use friends in a loose term, who are gearing up for this uh, big Marvel movie that's coming out later this year, uh, uh, Civil War or something, and they're gearing up for this movie by watching every other Marvel Universe movie. One, It's like this one-per-week thing until this Civil War movie comes out, and I just put your time to better use, people. Do you want to name and shame them? No. Okay. No. It's that they're nameless. <laughs> <laughs> nameless people like they're nameless movies. I mean, can you tell the difference between what happened in fucking Captain America 3 and Thor 8? <laughs> Fuck off. All right. So, award number seven, Saddest Celebrity Death Award of 2017. My award goes to John Hurt. He is the actor in The Elephant Man, Alien, and Midnight Express. He flew under the radar for most of his career, um, but at the same time was very beloved by audiences. He made a lot of small independent films like Dogville and Melancholia. He had a wonderful presence on screen. The last thing I saw him in was Jackie, and I didn't like that film, but I liked him in it. For me, the saddest celebrity death of 2017, without a doubt, was Tom Petty. 66 years old, still touring just days before his death. And we were lucky enough to see Stevie Nicks in concert soon after, and she and Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders did a duet of the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers song Stop Dragging My Heart Around, uh, which is something that um, uh, Stevie Nicks had duetted on the uh, studio version with Tom Petty. Uh, To tie this back into movies, because I assumed this was supposed to be a movie category, um, Petty's American Girl is used uh, in Silence of the Lambs. And that is one of my favourite uses of pop music in all of cinema. Mm. You know the scene? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. After all, it was a great big world With lots of places to run to Yeah, that she had to die Trying to That one who she was going to keep Oh, yeah All right Take it easy, baby couple of runner-ups, Adam West, the original Batman, Bill Paxton, Aliens and Twister, Jerry Lewis, Nutty Professor, and Martin Landau, who was so good in Crimes and Misdemeanors. So we lost a few good ones this year, last year. Uh, okay, number eight award, favourite TV show of 2017, and the award goes to... Feud! Oh my god, that's mine too! Betty and Joan. It was a television series about two actresses we love, both played by actresses we love, <laughs> detailing the mo- making of a movie we love. On top of that, it was pretty much perfect. And the last episode contained one of my great screen moments of the year, which was the dinner Mm. between Betty and Joan. It is a beautiful show, and it really had its finger on the pulse this year in terms of its exploration of ageism and the systemic misogyny that's in Hollywood. How could we not pick the show that we actually did an episode on? Yeah, that's true. Um, the details, the attention to detail, so rewarding for fans who know films like Trog and All About Eve and whatever happened to Baby Jane. The fact that it really tried to get all those moments right and that you had all these recognition moments as you were watching the show was really fun. It was um, inventively shot. I mean, the the shot of um, Jessica Lange walking through the backstage of the Oscars was enthralling. Mm. And as you say, I've even noted that bittersweet ending at the end, that last episode, is just utterly heartbreaking and um, really, really stirring. Getting back to something that we've talked about several times, this was a 
created and produced by Ryan Murphy, who has the Half Foundation, uh, wherein half of his the episodes of TV series he uh, produces will be directed by women, and Feud had more than half of its episodes directed by women. All right, so let's do number nine, which is favourite trailer of 2017. For me, it was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I loved that trailer. It got me so excited for that movie um, in a way that... Uh, I, I, there weren't that many trailers that I got excited about this year, certainly not like last year. I mean, last year, I think one of the best trailers I've ever seen is Fences. And I was just... That's it. I'm off to see this movie as soon as I saw that trailer. And really the only one that did it for me this year was Three Billboards. Yeah. Well, you kind of threw me on the spot with this award. Yeah, uh, sorry. No, no, you're okay. I'm just, I'm seriously, I, I, I can't think of a trailer that got me more excited than Mother right now. And it's funny because the trailer set me up for a movie I didn't get. <laughs> mm, yeah, and that's precisely why I didn't put Mother there, even though I was excited to see Mother. Mm. And the use of... All I remember is, like, these, uh, they sound like violin strings jarring. And uh, our final award, number 10, your best night at the movies 2017. Now, this can be any film that you saw in 2017, but that, for whatever reason, was just a great experience and you just have such fond memories of that night or that day that you saw this film. What's yours, Damien? I couldn't narrow it down to just one. Well... I'm sorry. Okay, give me a couple. Well, I have three. Three. Can I give you three? I suppose. The first one is you and I watched Nocturnal Animals at my house one night. And we were just, I remember just captivated throughout. We were silent throughout the whole movie. Mm. And it is such a such a really good, again, non-linear film. I mean, there were parts where we could have stopped and said, hey, what's going on right now? What do you think this is? What do you think this is? But we were so captivated that we just watched the entire movie before we even spoke. It was just, I thought it was really great. Uh, Secondly, we went on Nosferatu on the big screen with a live score as part of the Adelaide Fringe Festival in March. And finally, it's hard to go past seeing a masterpiece in your lifetime. So the first time I saw Mother was very special too. And just because I have to. There's a shout out to Jen here because I went and saw it with her. So, hi, Jen. <laughs> yeah, we have a friend named Jen. Um, she is a nightmare of selfishness, but she's also lots of fun. And we are actually going to bring her on the show this year um, at some point when we find a good film that we think that she'll have something to say about. So you'll all get to meet her. We're very excited to uh, to showcase Miss Jennifer Ross and welcome her onto Cellular Junkies. We'll probably turn the volume down on that microphone a little bit. <laughs> there are, as you know, Damien, a few blind spot films. What I mean to say is, for me, like there are a few films that, as a movie lover, I am I am meant to have already seen and I have not seen them. And the most obvious one of these is 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's right, I've not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, I admit it. But there's a couple of others as well that I haven't seen over... Um, over the years and my favorite night at the movies last year was seeing one of these films and the reason I saw it was because of you um we were at JB Hi-Fi it was early November and at that time Hariz was away and I was so miserable in my current job I was transitioning into a new job and um I was feeling I suppose a little bit raw we were at JB Hi-Fi and I picked up this film and I said uh I don't know why I picked it up, but you were like, haven't you seen that? That's nuts. Get it. See it. And so I went home. It must have been like the middle of the day. I just put it on thinking that it would be the kind of fun film that I, you know, and I was blown away, gobsmacked. 
Uh, my mum paid no attention, but dad was in the room with me. And then I remember when it finished, he said to me, doesn't it just make you feel awed? And I loved the use of that word. I will never forget my dad saying that word because it was exactly how I felt. And this movie is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But I have to say, you just reminded me of so many great moments I've had with you at the movies. So thank you, Damien, for being my ultimate movie pal. Well, thank you, Luke. You know, I couldn't live without you. Hmm, Back at you. What was strange to me about that was was, uh, not necessarily that you hadn't seen it because it's one of the great movies. It was because you hadn't seen it because it's an alien film by Steven Spielberg starring Richard Dreyfuss. It was that combination that made me go, you've never seen Close Encounters of the Third (laughs) Kind? I mean, I would have thought it would be... Uh, the kind of movie that you would have seen very young. So you love that film? No, I don't love that film. I think it's a really fun movie, but it's something I'd need to watch again to to adequately state how I feel about it because it's been so long. Well, I would definitely recommend watching it as an adult because I think you'll get something different out of I it. I think it's an adult film. It's not E.T. One thing that always put me off about it was that it's arts-friendly aliens. I knew that it was friendly aliens, and I thought, oh, I don't feel like watching another version of E.T. But it's nothing like E.T. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, E.T.'s made for kids. And it's incredible that it's, like, over 40 years old, I think, and it still stands up so uh, well. Yeah, I think it's 40 years old last year, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure the Blu-ray I got is the 40th anniversary. Well, I think it's 77, yeah, because yeah. it came two years, a couple of years after Jaws. our 2017 summary show Oscar lineup. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. It was actually really fun to talk about this stuff. Mm, We'll have to do it again next year. Same (laughs) time next year. That's a day. Alright guys well you look after yourselves and um, we'll see you next time.